You may open your Bibles with me this morning to the fourth chapter of Romans. Romans chapter 4. As the expositional preaching of Romans has taken us to the middle of chapter 10, this series of messages about the role of faith in our salvation becomes necessary. This subject is very important for our proper understanding of that chapter. And so I'm taking extra time outside of Romans to look in many places in the Scriptures that we might be established in the truth. This subject is very important because it is an identifying difference between us and other very conservative Christians. Preaching this subject is very lonely because there are precious few that hold the truth on the role of man's faith in his salvation. It is why we are small. It is why we shall always be small. Because the closer you get to the truth of Scripture, the smaller you will be, not the larger. The largest churches and the fastest growing are those that have departed the farthest from the Word of God. The largest Christian denomination, being the Roman Catholic Church, has departed so far from the Word of God, it's hard to recognize them or admit that they're Christian in any sense of the word. This subject is very important for our appreciation of faith and the graces related to faith that God placed within us by regeneration. This subject is very important for our understanding of our duty to press men, or God's elect, to faith and obedience. It's important for our own assurance and comfort of salvation that we properly understand what faith declares about us. In these sermons outside the expository preaching of Rome, Romans, I mean, about the role of faith, I'm doing it in a topical way, meaning that we have to go from Scripture to Scripture to Scripture, which is, by the way, the way the apostles preached. You'll never find the Apostle Paul preaching expositorily from some chapter of the Old Testament. It would be here a little, there a little, and then back for more, and again, and again, he would write and say in his writings. So we're going to have to do that. Let me make a summary of where we stand and what we believe. No man has ever been elected, been reconciled to God by Jesus Christ, or regenerated by the Holy Spirit, or will ever be glorified before the Holy God in eternal heaven by His faith, no matter how sincere that faith might have been or might be. The vain notion that faith is the condition or the instrument or the means by which we have any standing before God is ludicrous. Righteous faith from a man dead in sins cannot at all be the necessary condition for God to respond to us. Because it's impossible for a dead man to have such a righteous thing as faith in God that pleases him. Approval with God is by His will and grace in Jesus Christ. Faith cannot add to it nor complete it in any sense except for our own assurance and our own confidence and laying hold of eternal life, and making our calling and election sure in our own minds. But it does not change our standing before God. Faith is the result and proof of three salvations. And we would call those the eternal, legal, and vital phases, or we could refer to them by their main components, election, justification, and regeneration. Faith is the result and proof of those three. Faith is the condition for a fourth phase of salvation, and that's our practical gospel deliverance from error, ignorance, and to the proper knowledge and worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith is there, necessary for us to learn those things, believe them, and to do them. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. So to please God in a practical way of fellowship and walking with Him and keeping His commandments, Faith is a condition. It's necessary for us to be able to do that. And men vary from a lot to an Abraham. They vary from a Solomon to a David in the degree to which they apply themselves 
by faith to the commandments and word of God. If a man believes and obeys the gospel, which is true faith, God has previously elected, justified, and regenerated him, or he would not believe. In order for a man to learn the doctrine of Christ and convert his life to it, the practical phase of salvation, he must believe the gospel and do it. Laying hold of eternal life and the hope of glorification is done by faith, and those things to be added to it. If ye do these things, ye shall never fall. And what did the Apostle Peter mean by those words in Second Peter chapter 1? If you take the faith that was given to you by the righteousness of Jesus Christ and add to it the seven other things listed in the passage, you'll never fall. That is how you lay hold of eternal life, and that is how you assure yourself and make your election to heaven sure in your own mind. This is what we believe. God has saved a people by covenant design by giving them to the Lord Jesus Christ before the world began. Therefore, election, justification, and regeneration are acts of God according to His eternal counsel, and man is entirely passive, uncooperative, resisting and rebellious in those works of grace. But after his nature is changed by that third phase of regeneration, he then is able and willing to believe and obey in a pleasing way the God that saved him. And that's when the gospel comes and elicits faith into activity, into action. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. God places the faith in us, the principle of faith, the ability of faith, the desire of faith by regeneration. But it's the word of God telling us the precious promises of what God has done for us and has in store for us that calls that faith into activity. By believing the gospel, we assure ourselves that God has indeed elected us, justified us, and regenerated us. We comfort ourselves that eternal heaven is our next stop, because he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. And so that's how we put those things together. When we approach a study like this, and you will encounter this with others if you ever share your faith, meaning the religion of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you bring up the subject of how is a man saved? Or I bring up the subject, which is the title of this, these sermons, the role of faith in salvation. There is an absolutely essential question that needs to be asked that none ask. Which salvation are you talking about? And if you don't make a distinction, you are too ignorant to have a discussion. It makes me sick to read the learnest men that we would ever even come close to trusting as having a knowledge of God's Word, unwilling and unable to divide the Word of Truth, let alone rightly divide it. They will not, they cannot, and they do not see the distinctions in the different phases of salvation. When we say, what is the role of faith in salvation, you shouldn't answer that question until you say, which salvation? When salvation is mentioned as being a work of the Holy Ghost, you should say, which salvation? When someone says, Jesus saves, which salvation are you talking about? And that answers so many of the dilemmas and issues just by asking that question. It is a shame that people will read the New Testament and see salvation used in so many different ways. Whether it's the sailors on the ship that was carrying Paul from Caesarea to Rome, that if they didn't keep his conditions, they weren't going to be saved. Now that's a sixth phase of salvation. But I'm talking about five that refer to your soul. It needs to be asked and it needs to be answered. Then we can deal with the Bible by rightly dividing it and showing those verses that apply to it. Make sure that's done. We're in the epistle to the Romans. And in Romans chapter 4, the apostle Paul is dealing exclusively 
with Abraham as an example of a man declared righteous by God. From Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, in the 85th year of his life, when God told him that he would have a seed as numerous as the stars of heaven. And the Bible tells us in Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed the Lord, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Paul is going to use that statement. Romans 4, 3. For what saith the Scripture? And Paul is referring to Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Abraham's faith was counted to Abraham for righteousness. Look at verse 9, the second half of it. For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. God reckoned Abraham's faith for righteousness to Abraham. Look at verse 22. And therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. God imputed Abraham's faith to him for righteousness. Look at Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 6. Even as Abraham believed God. Here is Paul in another epistle referring to Genesis 15, 6 again. Even as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So in four New Testament quotations or uses of Genesis 15, 6, we have counted reckoned, imputed, and accounted. God looked at Abraham's faith in believing his promise, which was the least of the acts of Abraham's faith. If you look at some of the deeds of his faith in Genesis chapters 11, 12, 13, and 14, and declared Abraham to be a righteous man by virtue of the faith that he had. He didn't make Abraham righteous legally or vitally or eternally or finally in the presence of God by his faith. He simply identified his faith as the evidence, the proof, the sign, the character, the trait of a righteous man and declared it so in one verse without explanation. The Apostle Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, knowing why that verse was put there, used it to convince the Jews that keeping the law of Moses was not the way to have God declare you righteous, because God declared Abraham righteous by faith without the works of the law, 430 years in advance of Mount Sinai, and 13 years in advance of his circumcision. He was circumcised in the 99th year of his life when Ishmael was 13 years old. And that's why it's there. This is what we understand about Abraham's faith and Abraham's declared righteousness. And this is what we believe about ours. When we believe the gospel, it shows an utter transformation of our soul. Because without God changing our soul... God is not in all your thoughts. There is none that understandeth. Would you pray tell me how you can believe if you can't understand? There is none that seeketh after God. Would you tell me how you can believe in God acceptably pleasing to Him without seeking Him? There is no fear of God before their eyes. And the Bible goes on and on to describe our natural condition, so that when a man believes, it shows an utter reformation, renovation, and creation of a new man within him. So when a man believes, we know that that man has already been born again, exactly what the Bible tells us in places like John 5.24, and 1 John 5.1, and John 3.3, and John 8.47, and other places that we can turn. If he's regenerated, that means having been given a righteous and holy nature, 
then we know that his legal standing before God is already accepted or God would not give a holy and righteous nature to a condemned man. And if he is free from his state of condemnation before God, then we know he was chosen to it and predestined to it before the world began. And so we end up with faith being involved in the fourth phase of our salvation where we prove the first three. We lay hold of assurance of the final phase yet to come and we do those things that are pleasing to God. One verse in Genesis 15 is abused so much. Abraham's great faith began 10 years before Genesis 15. Abraham's great faith had already been exercised in works far beyond believing a promise. That just happens to be what Paul pulled out because it was faith only in a promise of God that he could use with Jews who wanted to stick works of every kind into salvation. And if you would see that, it would help you understand Romans 4 and Galatians 3 immensely. Turn to Psalm 106. Turn to Psalm 106. If it had never rained, and God told you it was going to rain, and because it had never rained, no one else believed that there was such a thing as rain, would you take 120 years to build an ark, telling everyone that it's going to rain, taking every animal by twos into that ark, and food for a long stay, and then going into that ark with your family, would you do it? By God's grace. That's the perfect answer. Lord, help us. Because do you know what? We're doing that when we preach a message like this. We are nearly alone in the earth at understanding faith to be an evidence of regeneration, justification, and election stated in reverse order and and only merely laying claim and assuring our hearts of glorification that is yet to come. We're alone. There's very few in the world that believe it. But... The truth has always been believed by only a very few in the earth. So instead of discouraging us, it ought to comfort us. Though at times it's a little fearful to walk into that ark. But when God shuts the door, that helps, doesn't it? When you walk in and all of a sudden the door slams and your wife says, Why would you slam the door? I didn't touch it. The Lord closed the door. Psalm 106. This is a history of Israel in the wilderness. Verse 28, They joined themselves also unto Baal Peor, and ate the sacrifices of the dead. Thus they provoked him to anger with their inventions, and the plague break in upon them. This is Israel in the wilderness, practicing idolatry and God judging them for it with a plague. Verse 30, Then stood up Phinehas and executed judgment, and so the plague was stayed. How did he execute judgment? He saw fornication and whoredom taking place with the Moabites in a tent, and while the nation stood there in a weeping assembly, he grabbed a javelin and went into that tent and thrust them both through, both the man and the woman. That's executing judgment against sin. And so the plague stopped. Verse 31, And that was counted unto him for righteousness unto all generations forevermore. We believe the Bible. We believe every word of the Bible. And we compare spiritual things with spiritual things. So we end up with first, with Psalm 106.31 being a direct cross-reference to Genesis 15.6. And then, of course, to Romans 3, Romans 4, 3, Romans 4, 9, Romans 4, 22, and Galatians 3, 6. Whatever it meant in the case of Abraham, it means in the case of Phinehas. Now, if you want to make the faith of Abraham in Genesis 15, 6, the condition or the instrument or the means of his legal righteousness before God, then you must do the same with Phinehas. And instead of believing, Phinehas did some killing. And he took his javelin and ran through both a man and a woman. And that 
was counted unto him for righteousness unto all generations forevermore. Does that verse tell us that God made Phinehas righteous in heaven because he killed those two? Or did Phinehas kill those two because he was a righteous man and God declared it so? Back in Numbers chapter 25 where it occurred and here in Psalm 106. Brethren, this should be so simple to you, you should be saying, I know that already. Well then don't forget it. Because if you ever talk about our doctrine of salvation, you're going to need to remember it in order to defend it. I love this text. It is the exact wording I want. And the Bible tells me in 1 Corinthians 2.13 that if we are to understand the things that are freely given to us of God, it is conveyed by the words which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. So I've got a spiritual thing in Genesis 15.6 with the words, counted unto him for righteousness. And I've got a spiritual thing in Psalm 106.31, counted unto him for righteousness. I'm all set. I've got it made in the shade. Thank you, Lord. So the guy with the degree in bank financial management can rightly divide the word of truth. Thank you, Lord, for saving me from the cemetery where I might have been taught that you don't need to divide the word of truth. As long as you've got faith and righteousness in the same verse, you can just say faith is necessary for you to ever be righteous. When we can see that it's different from that. Oh, thank you, Lord. Doesn't that verse excite you? I remember the first time I found that verse and the smile inside, the smile outside. Lord, you are sweet. Lord, you are precious. Lord of heaven and earth, I thank thee that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them unto babes. God counted, reckoned, imputed, and accounted all four words, which are synonyms, that Abraham and Phinehas were already righteous men in their character by the things they did. Abraham, it was a matter of faith. Anywhere else you read, it wasn't Genesis 15, 6 at all. If you go to Hebrews 11, the Apostle Paul brings up the fact that he left home in Ur of the Chaldeans and started a multi-hundred mile trip not knowing where he was going. That's a whole lot bigger than believing a promise. And James would say that his attempt to offer his son Isaac in Genesis chapter 2 was a whole lot bigger, and it proved Genesis 15, 6 to have any value to it at all. He fulfilled it by threatening to kill his own son Isaac. And so God counted, reckoned, imputed, and accounted Phinehas and his javelin as the character of a righteous man and declared him so. And so when we believe, we believe with, we believe in our hearts unto salvation and confession is made with our mouths unto salvation. We believe in our hearts unto righteousness and confession with our mouths unto salvation. We don't get saved and we don't get made righteous in the sight of God. But believing and confessing that Jesus Christ of Nazareth is the Son of God is the evidence of our righteous character that God gave us. Because we would never believe nor would we ever confess except by the Spirit of the living God after regeneration. This is the gospel of God's sovereign grace. They can call us hyper-Calvinists and we'll thank them because the last thing we want to do is be aligned with John Calvin. We want to be aligned with the Holy Scriptures and they go way beyond that baby-sprinkling, eternal sonship, state church sacramentalist. Lord, help us. We're thankful for any good thing that he did, but listen, why not just read the Bible instead of read a hundred pages to find a paragraph that is helpful. And Lord, we're nothing. We're babes, but we want to be taught from heaven, not from men. Look at Psalm 10 and verse 4. I've already quoted it. I'd like to use it about twice. More. Three times the same verse. In the same sermon, well, I don't want you to forget it. I want you to see how it can be used. Let's think of another point here. Man cannot generate faith. 
Man cannot create faith. Man cannot be worked up to faith in his heart. It's beyond him. And the Bible tells us so. And here's one of those places. Psalm 10.4, the wicked. Now do you know who we're talking about? All men, unless they're saved. The wicked, through the pride of his countenance, will not seek after God. God is not in all his thoughts. Well, if God is never in the thoughts of a wicked man, when is that wicked man going to have faith toward God in order to be made not wicked? By being saved, as they tell us. The text tells us God never enters their thoughts. If God never enters their thoughts, how can faith, which requires a whole lot of thinking, be the means of getting saved? As they call it. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. These verses you know well, but it's a review for us. I don't preach on these subjects all that often because we're well established in them. And yet Peter tells me that those things we're well established in need to be repeated just like the rest. And especially with newer members and younger members, I want these things to be settling into your hearts and minds so that you are able to give the certain words of truth in answer to any questions you might ever face about our doctrine. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Now this death is not physical, it's spiritual, and it's about to be described. Wherein? In this death. In time past ye walked according to the course of this world. According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. There wasn't a single good thing in us. By nature, we look just like those that God will judge for eternity under his wrath in the lake of fire. We were walking according to the course of this world. And what is the course of this world? Rebellion against God with an end of being destroyed by God. According to the prince of the power of the air. Who is that? That's the devil himself, the enemy of God. He was our leader and he was our pleasing leader. We loved following the devil because we were dead in trespasses and sins. In the day that Adam and Eve ate the fruit off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they truly died spiritually. They had no further interest, no further love toward God, but instead hatred and rebellion. And that's how we come into existence. Now if we're dead in trespasses and sins, according to this description, and much more could be said, and much more has been said, and much more hopefully someday shall be said, how in the world... Can we raise faith up within ourselves if that's our condition? Those who think that by any kind of preaching or any kind of musical enticement at the end of a sermon or by a motorcycle lock-in or even by the resurrection of Lazarus from the grave that they can raise faith out of a dead man, they are repeating the lie of Satan himself from the Garden of Eden. Thou shalt not surely die. Oh yes, we surely died. We died. We are not sick in need of medicine or therapy. We're dead in need of resurrection. We're dead in need of life. We're dead in need of creation. And there's only one that can resurrect, give life, and create. And it's God Himself. So, man cannot generate faith. And the Bible teaches it repeatedly. We were in our flesh and fulfilling the desires of the flesh and having our lifestyle in the lusts of the flesh is all stated in that third verse. Come back to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. You know the favorite writer of Arminian's but they only read a couple select verses. They don't dare read the whole Gospel of John because John's going to tell them how a man is saved and when he's saved. And he's going to tell them, John's going to tell them before he can get out of his introduction. In his introduction, he's saying he came unto his own 
and his own received him not. He's still introducing the Lord Jesus Christ. But he has this to say, and I must be brief for reasons of time. Becoming the sons of God is mentioned in verse 12, and the present tense believing on Jesus' name at the end of verse 12, which the Jews did not do, but those that did do, according to verse 13, were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now, if becoming a child of God and being born again excludes the will of the flesh, and that's all you were before you were born again, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. But before you're born of the Spirit, you're only in the flesh. How are you going to get a man born of the Spirit? Well, I'm going to get the will of the flesh to exercise itself toward Jesus. But the Bible says right here that is impossible because you're dead in trespasses and sins and the flesh hates the Lord Jesus Christ, hates God, hates the law of God, is not subject to the law of God and cannot please God and will not please God. John 1.13, which were born, born again, made children of God, not of blood. It's not by race. Because you were a Jew or related to Abraham didn't help a bit, nor of the will of the flesh, what you have by your first birth, nor of the will of man. No God parent can do it for you, which Presbyterians, Lutherans, Episcopalians, Catholics, and others rely on the faith of the parents and the faith of the godparents to stand in for the lacking faith of that little dirtying infant that's being christened or baptized in those churches. And I love this text. If you want to prepare an outline on how men are born again, start out with how they're not born again. And there's the three great heresies that absorb 95% of all so-called Christians in one verse. It's not racial. It's not by your will. It's not by the will of anyone else. It's by God. And what is? how does He regenerate men? Like the wind, John 3, 8. The wind bloweth where it listeth. That means the wind blows wherever it wants to. And thou seest thou, John chapter 3 and verse 8. Thou hearest the sound thereof, and canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. You don't control it at all. And so here we are, and so many more things could be said that are not being said. How in the world can such men have faith? They cannot. Man cannot generate faith. It's not the will of his flesh. It's not the will of another man. It's not by race. It's of God. He's dead in trespasses and sins. His lifestyle is according to the lust of the flesh. And all he is is flesh. He's following the devil. There is no faith. He's dead, dead, and dead. So unless God saves men without faith or before faith, and then gives him faith, he'll never have faith. If God had made eternal life dependent on man believing him or his word, how many would be saved? None. No, not one. Man will not generate faith. We could have preached for a long time on the fact that man cannot because the Bible precludes any possibility of faith. But the Bible goes further and says, man, if he could, would not exercise faith in God. Let's go back to Psalm 10 and verse 4. For the third time in this first assembly, and see if it doesn't tell us that as well. We use the last clause of verse 4 on our second pass through the verse. God is not in all his thoughts. And since this is a statement by the God of heaven about the character and nature of man, that God is not in all his thoughts, then man cannot generate faith because faith requires lots of thoughts about God. But there's more in the verse. And it's the first half of the verse. The wicked, through the pride of his countenance, will not seek after God. So, the cannot is built on a will not. 
Because it's man's will not that reduces him to a cannot. Intellectually, man is able to recognize facts and draw conclusions. He ought to be able to recognize facts in creation, recognize facts in conscience, recognize facts in providence, recognize facts in revelation of Scripture, and draw conclusions that there is an eternal God with power and a Godhead. But He will not. Romans 1.28 would put it this way. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. Do you see where the problem is? And even as they did not like to retain God, the little inkling they get of God, they hurry up and get rid of that thought because they don't want the thought. Through the pride of their countenance, they will not admit that there is another being that has the right to tell them how to live. That there is another being that gave them life and they can't turn it off. That there is another being that is going to judge their souls in an eternal hell for their sins. Through the pride of their countenance, they hate that thought, so they turn it off. They do not like to retain God in their knowledge. Look at John chapter 3. John chapter 3. You know, we've preached a message before. John 3.16, reclaimed, revisited, and repossessed. Because it's ours, not theirs. They only know one verse in the chapter. If they were to read the whole chapter before they ever got to verse 16, they would have got to the fact that Jesus explained to Nicodemus that a man had to be born again before he could even see the kingdom of God. Well, now, how are you going to believe on Jesus Christ, who's the king of the kingdom of God, in verse 16, unless you're born again in the first eight verses? And if you're born again in the first eight verses, then John 3.16 can't have a thing to do with getting born again. We'll be back to John 3.16, and it's so simple. Once the foundation's laid, just like the Word of God is supposed to be, it is all plain to him that understandeth. That's what the Bible says about itself. It's just I'm trying to help your understanding. Then we'll go look at these verses that you've heard the wrong way most of your life, and we'll read them the right way. John chapter 3. Look at verse 19. And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. Who makes all the difference in these three verses? The God of heaven does. Man by nature hates the light, because it reproves him. Adam... Where art thou? Why was he hiding? He hated the light of a righteous God because he was now a guilty sinner. What hast thou done? Hast thou eaten the fruit off the tree which I told thee that thou shouldest not eat? The woman which thou gavest me, she made me eat. Look at the blame game. Why? Where did that come from? Because they're evil, and they hate the light, and they will not come to the light, and they avoid the light by hiding or falsely accusing someone else. He was the head of that home. She was to be a helper to him. He could have turned her down, but he didn't. But he was blaming. Oh, Lord, help us understand all these things plainly and clearly. By the pride of his countenance, they will not believe. Some say... Well, all he needs is a change in his environment. Turn to Isaiah 26. Isaiah 26. Some will say if we change his environment, if we get him out of the jungle and put him in civilization and sing, Jesus loves me, this I know, it'll change him. If you would ever take the time or you ever happen into viewing aborigines of Australia or New Zealand up close, or those hidden tribes in the Amazon Valley of Brazil, or some of those cannibal tribes in the interior of Africa, or other places you look at them, they are totally void of sense, as we would measure sense. And you can take them out of their environment, but the Bible would say it's no different than trying to get spots off a leopard 
or change an Ethiopian skin, or keep a dog from eating its vomit, or a pig from its wallowing. You can't change its nature. But God can change even those natures I just referred to. And He can change it in less than a nanosecond with the power of His voice. He did in Cornelius of the Italian band, that pagan Roman, an Italian. But here we are in Isaiah 26. Some say, let's change their environment and they'll all believe on Jesus. Let's take, let's go over there and drill wells for them, give them medicine and food, put clothes on them. But here's what the Bible says. Isaiah 26, 10, let favor be showed to the wicked. Yet will he not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness will he deal unjustly and will not behold the majesty of the Lord. Could it be any plainer? You're not going to change man by changing his environment. So unless God saves man without faith or before faith and then gives him faith, he'll never believe. If God had made eternal life dependent on man believing him or his word, none would be saved. A few minutes ago I said none could be saved because the Bible says he cannot believe, but now I'm saying none would be saved because the Bible says he will not believe. God rejects man's role in salvation. Look at Romans chapter 9. Man's will isn't involved. And if man's will is not involved, then how will you believe? John 1.13 said, we're turning to Romans 9. John 1.13 said, it is not of the will of the flesh. That is so powerful. Being born again is the transition from flesh to spirit. From one nature to two natures. How do you get this fleshly man to have a spiritual man? The Bible says it's got to require a birth. Because that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Well, what can you do to that flesh? I know this is the second time I'm going over it. But it's so powerful, and I want to give you something to use with others. Your first birth makes you a man of flesh. And the Bible says that which is born of the flesh is flesh. What are you going to do with that flesh? Ephesians 2 says that that flesh is dead and following the devil. And by nature, there's no difference between it and the children of wrath that will be sent to hell. John 1.13 says it is not the will of the flesh. So what are you going to do to the flesh to get it to do something in order to become spirit? Nothing. There isn't a thing you can do. There's no preaching that can accomplish it. The Holy Spirit Himself according to 1 Corinthians 2, cannot present the gospel well enough to help a man in the flesh. But he that is spiritual judgeth all things. The Holy Spirit has to regenerate a man first. Then there is something to deal with. You know, there are limitations even on God Himself. God cannot die. God cannot lie. And God cannot persuade a man dead in trespasses and sins. Or he wouldn't be dead. Because you can't persuade a dead man. God has to give them life first. Then they can be persuaded. That is why Jesus would tell in his lesson in Luke 16 that even if Lazarus were to go back from the dead to the brothers of the rich man, it wouldn't do any good because if they don't hear the preaching of Moses... They're not going to hear the testimony of a man back from the dead. Right. You'd say, that's, that's, that, that's just got to be wrong. You know that people would be so overwhelmed that a man coming back from the dead, they'd believe. All that man coming back from the dead would have to start laying out what pleases God and they would kill him again. Right. And if you don't think so, go to Luke 4 and see what they tried to do to Jesus when they marveled at his gracious words that proceeded out of his mouth. They wanted to kill him. Romans 9 verse 15 says that God saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So it's God's will that shows mercy and compassion, and the conclusion can then be drawn, which conclusion we do draw right now. So then, here's the conclusion. It is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. And faith heavily involves your will. So when it says it is not of him that willeth, that's cutting out your faith. When it says it's not of him that runneth, it's cutting out your works. So both are cut out in Romans 9.16.
Praise His glorious name. Jesus saved His sheep by Himself. The singular obedience of the second Adam. I'll never tire of the glorious doctrine that we were held in covenant relationship to Adam. It doesn't matter if you've never heard of Adam. It doesn't matter if you reject any any existence of Adam. You are held in covenant relationship with Adam by the God of heaven. So that even they, which did not sin after the similitude of Adam's transgression, meaning a formal stated law that they broke, they died anyway. In Romans 5, 12 through 14, in the great dispensation from Adam to Moses, men, children, infants, all died because they were all guilty of eating the fruit off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because God had tied them into a covenant relationship with Adam. And that is why you die. Romans 5, 12 through 14. If you don't believe that, then where did death come from? You say, well, our own sins. Then why does it say in Romans 5, 12 through 14 that they even died that didn't sin like Adam sinned? For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, even so by the righteousness of one shall many be made righteous. That is how we're made righteous. That is how righteousness is imputed to us. We we had Adam's sin and condemnation imputed to us, counted to us, declared on us. And so Jesus Christ's singular obedience in Romans 5, 19 results in our righteousness. By His righteousness being imputed, counted and accounted and declared about us. Thank you, Lord. Salvation has to be worked in first. Do you remember last Lord's Day where we learned that God hath worked in us both to will and to do of His good pleasure? But without faith it is impossible to please Him. So if you do anything pleasing to God, according to Philippians 2.13, it's because God worked it in you first and it is your duty to work it out with fear and trembling. Fear and trembling. Yes, whether your elect or not should cause you some fear. Whether your elect or not should cause you some trembling. And do you know what that fear and trembling ought to result in? Giving all diligence to settle the matter. Second Peter chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul said, Therefore we labor, whether present or absent, that we may be accepted of Him. He wanted to make it sure to Himself. Well, look at Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10, God is not in all his thoughts. How many thoughts was God in in Cornelius? All the time. Praise the Lord. Acts 10, 1, there was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of the band called the Italian band, a devout man. That's a religiously zealous man. That's not enough definition for us yet. We could try to stretch the word devout, but it's not strong enough to prove the point yet. We're getting there. A devout man and one that feared God with all his house. Now Romans 3.18 tells us there is no fear of God before their eyes. How does this man fear God and his family and household servants? How? God put that faith, that fear in him by regenerating him already which gave much alms to the people and prayed to God always. Well, there's lots of people that give alms and there's lots of people that pray, but not all alms are received up into heaven, nor are all prayers heard in heaven. Because the Bible says repeatedly that God does not hear the prayers of the wicked. He only hears the prayers of the righteous. Oh, I needed that word. So Cornelius was a righteous man, and Peter's going to confess it so in verses 34 and 35. In every nation, he that feareth him and worketh righteousness. That means giving alms for the right motive to the right people that please God. Why was, why was Cornelius doing these things? Because God had elected him before the foundation of the world. Christ Jesus had died for his sins on the cross of Calvary and the Holy Spirit had regenerated him and given him a new man and that new man was exercising itself to the extent of his knowledge. And the extent of his knowledge was to pray to God always, asking for God for mercy and direction for his life, giving much alms to the people, not just a little bit, 
But he was very liberal in his devising toward the people, and they were the people of God. They were the people of Israel. They were the Jews who worshipped the monotheistic God named Jehovah. And he feared God. And what God was it? It was Jehovah that he feared. And his prayers, we hear the angel evidently about the ninth hour of the day, verse 3, an angel of God coming into him and saying unto him, Cornelius. And when he looked on him, he was afraid. When Cornelius saw the angel, it caused him to be afraid. And he said, what is it, Lord? Does that sound any different than Saul of Tarsus? No. What is it, Lord? And he said unto him, thy prayers and thine alms are come up for memorial before God. Cornelius was a righteous man before Peter ever got to him. Here we go. Our bus is lonely on our trip to heaven. You know, the Campbellites don't want to get Cornelius saved until the last few verses of the chapter because he wasn't baptized to the last few verses of the chapter. You know, the Arminians are just a few verses in front of them and, oh, you ought to listen to an Arminian preach against a Campbellite. But the Arminians are just a few verses in front of the Campbellites by saying he didn't believe until he'd heard the gospel from Peter. And that is the truth. Because Peter's going to testify in Acts chapter 15, which you read a week ago, that God made choice that the Gentiles, by my mouth, would hear the gospel and believe. That's what he testified in that great council that was held in Jerusalem. And so we know that while Cornelius certainly knew about Jesus of Nazareth, that he went about doing good and doing miracles, Peter acknowledges this. That news couldn't be hid. Jesus of Nazareth was a well-known figure, but that well-known figure caused great divisions among everyone that heard about him. Because some loved him, most hated him. But he hadn't heard the gospel because Peter said he hadn't heard the gospel until Peter preached to him. But Peter, before he preaches the gospel to him, looks at Cornelius and says, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this man fears God, even though he's from a different nation than the Jews, and this man does righteousness, showing that he is accepted with God. The way we would write it is, he has been accepted with God. On the present tense, evidence of, he- of fearing and doing righteousness. That's Acts 10. We've preached it before. I don't want to preach it again. Give me a couple verses and we'll close. I have a so many more, but you're, so, you're close by. Just turn to Acts 16. Acts 16. What a story about Cornelius. That's how we're all saved, brethren. That's how every man saved. The, 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 the interval between regeneration and hearing and believing the gospel might be short, might be long. Cornelius, it was a while. He needed a while in order to give much alms to the people and to have his whole house taught in the fear of God. And all of that was by God's regenerating grace in a family. Remember that. Thank you, Lord. Acts 16. Paul and Luke arrive in Philippi. Verse 12 tells us it's the chief city of that part of Macedonia and a colony. We were there abiding certain days. Verse 13. And on the Sabbath, we went out of the city by a riverside where prayer was wont to be made. And we sat down and spake unto the women which resorted thither. These are other Corneliuses. Notice what they're doing out there. They're praying to God. This was not praying to Zeus or Jupiter. This was prayer that the apostle would recognize and appreciate. Verse 14, And a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshipped God, that's why she was there, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. Now why was she already worshiping God when the Bible says God is not in all their thoughts? She was already regenerated. Then why did God have to open her heart? Because I want to tell you this, brethren, even after regeneration, God must open your heart and open your eyes to behold the wondrous things out of His law. Ephesians chapter 1, after all the emphasis on God's electing and predestinating grace, verses 17 and 18, 
Paul said, I pray for you, Ephesians, that the spirit of illumination will open your understanding to be able to comprehend with all saints wonderful things about God's salvation and the future hope of glory. Then in chapter 3, it's the dimensions of Christ's love. Paul is praying for the Ephesians to have that further eye-opening. Because without eye-opening, you can't have proper faith. And there's no eye-opening without the grace of God in your life. That is why David, who wrote the most spectacular 176 verses about the Scriptures in Psalm 119, in the 18th verse of that psalm would say, Open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. That man who already loved God's Word so much and had insight into it very greatly, prayed for further. That is how dependent we are on God. And Lydia worshipped God, and then it tells us, She heard us, whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. God can close up a heart so that you don't hear, and you don't attend. And do you know what he would say that you ought to do when you know that your heart has been opened? Blessed are your eyes that for they see, and your ears that they hear, he told the apostles in Matthew chapter 13. And what are we supposed to do according to 2 Thessalonians 2.13? We are bound to give thanks to God always because He chose us to salvation from the beginning through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. If you believe the truth, it's because God chose you to faith from the beginning. You know, the Apostle Paul dumbed his message down. This is the last verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. There's 40 more, but we'll just stop here. Uh, that's 40 more on this point. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul dumbed the message down in order to prove that faith comes from God. It's the power of God that would ever make a man believe. Paul's so plain about the power of God that makes a man believe. In Ephesians chapter 1, he says it's the same power that got the dead body, the Lord Jesus Christ, up walking out of that tomb. It's the same power that gets any one of us to believe. To want to be in this church today, if you're here because you want to be. If you're looking forward to the Lord's Supper. If you rejoice this morning singing, rejoice, the Lord is King. Because you want to honor Him as King. It is because God has done an incredible event in your existence. The same power He had to put forth that it took to raise the dead body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why it goes on to say, And you hath He quickened, because He quickened the Lord Jesus Christ. And he quickened us from our death and trespasses and sins, which took the same quickening power of God. 1 Corinthians 2, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom. This is the first verse, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. If a man ever believes the gospel, it's because the power of God has been put forth toward that man from God. And when that takes place, when that is done, it doesn't matter how the gospel's preached. It doesn't need to be presented eloquently. It, it needs to be presented passionately and by the Spirit of the living God. Paul dumbed the message down to prove that their faith was truly of God. And all true faith is truly of God. One, uh, I said one passage because it was the same book. Chapter 3 and verse 5. Here's the apostle defending the fact that they ought not to have divisions among themselves based on Paul or Apollos, as in verse 4. Who then is Paul, verse 5? And who is Apollos? But ministers by whom ye believed, even as the Lord gave to every man. The Lord is the one that gives repentance and the acknowledging of the truth to every man. And the Lord is the one that gives ministerial fruit to every minister. And both are included in this verse because it's all of God. This is the gospel that we believe. Thank you, Lord, for the faith that you've given us. Do you understand the extent and the power of the change that's been made in your existence? That you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the King of glory, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle, the Lord of hosts, coming again, seated at God's right hand, and that you want to live for Him. 
It is by the grace and power of the living God that has given us that faith. Our faith is not the condition, the instrument, or the means of getting justified or accepted with God. It's the evidence and the assurance of it. And if you'll believe this day, you can lay hold of eternal life and claim it for yourself. In the sight of God, you've been saved from before the world began. Because known unto God are all His works from the foundation of the world. The foreknowledge of God depends on His works, not seeing any from you. Because when He looked to you, there was none to see. Salvation is of the Lord. And I don't mean that in Jonah's sense of the words. But I mean it in addition to Jonah's sense of the words. Our eternal life is of the Lord. May the Lord be praised. Amen.